Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Yule greetings, everyone, and a merry, merry winter's solstice. The longest night of the year. A time of darkness, perfect for vampires. In the modern world, vampires are accepted as fantasy. Mythological undead creatures, fanged ghouls ravenous for human blood. We see them as elements of fun, from the romantic notions of films like Twilight and television shows like True Blood, to the absolutely terrifying and monstrous in films like 30 Days of Night, and books like Stephen King's Salem's Lot, and the all-time literary classic, Dracula. But it wasn't always so. There was a time, and not that long ago, when vampires were considered very, very real indeed. And not just in some far-off corner of Europe, either. But right in the United States. New England, to be specific. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we bring to you tales of New England vampires and the story of Mercy Brown. Let's begin. On a beautiful summer day in 1990, a group of children were merrily playing in a quarry in Griswold, Connecticut. As they scurried about the mounds of sand and gravel, fighting off imaginary monsters, digging and kicking the earth free, lost in play, a gruesome sight emerged from the hidden depths of rock and dirt. Human skeletal remains. One of the boys ran home to tell his mother of their discovery, telling her they'd been playing in a graveyard and unearthed parts of a skeleton. His mother at first assumed he was making up stories, part of the ever-expanding landscape of children's imaginations, a tall tale to impress a friend or scare the younger siblings. But she would be proved all too wrong when the little boy returned home later, proudly displaying two unearthed human skulls. Believe me now, Mom. <laughs> you know he wanted to keep them, too. I mean, what a find for a little kid. I was, I was such a weird little kid. I would have been so stoked to find those. And I would have been like, Mom, I want to keep them. <laughs> I mean, honestly, me too. Me too. <laughs> Horrified, this mother called the police, who at first believed the playing children had uncovered the dumping ground of a local serial killer named Michael Ross. The area was cordoned off as a crime scene, but it soon became evident that these bones were old, very old, from at least a century ago. Connecticut State archaeologist Nick Bellantani was contacted and determined the boys had been playing at what had once been a colonial-era farm cemetery consisting of 29 graves. New England is rife with these small, half-hidden, and unmarked plots, and this graveyard was indicative of what was the norm for the 17 and 1800s, the thrifty Yankee-style type burial, using cheap wooden coffins, the bodies had no jewelry or even much clothing. Even the two stone crypts that were discovered on the premises didn't raise eyebrows, at least at first. But when Bellantani oversaw the excavation of the crypt dubbed 
burial number four, it became clear that something very strange was going on with this plot. It was baffling and bizarre. The red painted coffin, which had the initials JB spelled out on it in brass tacks, had been smashed open and the corpse had been desecrated. The rib cage had been shattered, the head hacked from the body and set atop the broken rib cage, with the femur bones below it in an X pattern, just like a pirate's flag, the universal symbol to beware that death comes to those who enter. As Bellantoni said, quote, it looked like a skull and crossbones motif, a Jolly Roger. I'd never seen anything like it, end quote. It appeared that five years after this man had been buried, someone had broken into the crypt, smashed open the coffin, hacked out the heart or whatever was left of it, beheaded the body, cut off the legs, and placed the head and thigh bones in the ancient pattern of a skull and crossbones. But why? In an effort to understand what had happened, Nick Bellantoni reached out to Rhode Island folklore scholar Michael Bell, who had the answer for him. Vampires. Those playful little boys, having fun, romping in the sand and gravel, had inadvertently discovered the location of one of the infamous Jewett City vampires. In the mid-1800s, families in the area, believing they were being plagued by vampires, began digging up their dead relatives and removing their hearts in an attempt to stop the scourge of undead bloodsuckers laying ravage to the land. One thing about living in Griswold, Connecticut, I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. <laughs> All right. <laughs> The plot would eventually be identified as the Walton Family Cemetery, and 30 years after the discovery, DNA would determine the man was a farmer who died in 1826, named John Barber. But the question remains, why would a Connecticut farmer, five years after his death, be believed a vampire? What could lead to such a dreadful and terrifying conclusion, so intensely believed his body was actually dug up, decapitated, and the heart removed? Why did townspeople from myriad communities across the six New England states feel the need to exhume these, quote, offending corpses, end quote, in attempts to stop them from rising from their graves to kill the living? Well, let's get into it. It's weird and wild. And spooky as hell. Chapter One, The Vampire. The notion of vampirism has existed for millennia. Cultures such as the Mesopotamians, Hebrews, ancient Greeks, Manipuri, and Romans all spun tales of demons and spirits, which became the precursors to modern vampires. Despite the occurrence of vampiric creatures in these ancient civilizations, the folkloric history for the entity known today as the vampire originates almost exclusively from Eastern Europe. But these undead creatures weren't sophisticated counts or sexy, sparkling lover boys. They were bloated corpses returned from the grave to spread malevolence and disease, more akin to a zombie than what we think of today as a vampire. 
The first big case of vampirism, and the earliest documented case showing both the method of a wooden stake through the heart and using the cross as a means of defense against the undead, was in 1672, when a panic started among villagers in what is today Croatia, because they became convinced that one Your Grando had become a vampire after dying in 1656. Sixteen years after his death, Yor was believed to have arisen from his grave by night to terrorize the village. The village priest who had officiated Yor's burial learned that late at night, a mysterious figure would come knocking on the doors around the village, and on whomever's door he knocked, someone from that house would die within the next few days. Yor's terrified widow claimed his corpse would appear before her in the darkness of night, grinning and gasping for breath before violently raping her. Eventually, the priest was able to confront the undead monster, holding out a cross before him and yelling, Behold Jesus Christ, you vampire! Stop tormenting us! Villagers supposedly chased down the vampire and attempted to pierce his heart with a sharpened stick of hathorn, but the stick simply bounced off the monster's chest. Eventually, they went to the graveyard in the dead of night, carrying lamps and armed with crosses and sharpened spikes of hathorn. They dug up the body and found his corpse perfectly preserved, with a ghoulish grin on his lips. Again, they attempted to pierce the fiend's heart with their stakes, and again, they simply bounced off his chest. Undaunted, as they feverishly prayed, they sawed the corpse's head off, causing the creature to howl in pain, fresh blood erupting from the incision. Once beheaded, the undead ghoul was never heard from again, and peace returned to the village. And just to be clear, this is all absolutely true and historically accurate. <laughs> now, I do wonder how these stories come about, whether it's like a complicated game of telephone, the story being slowly more and more embellished, until it becomes something from a horror story, or if maybe the town priest spun it himself as a means of keeping the villagers in fear to control them, and then everyone else just goes along with it because it sounds better than, yeah, we freaked out, dug up a corpse and sawed its head off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. But the biggest case of vampirism whose legend spread far and wide and was instrumental in the wave of vampire mania that spread across Europe and beyond, was that of Serbian Petar Blagojevic. Blagojevic died in 1725, and his death was followed by a spate of other sudden deaths. Within eight days, nine people perished, all claiming on their deathbeds that they had been attacked by Blagojevic in the night. He, too, it is said, returned to his wife, but instead of sexually assaulting her, simply asked for his shoes. <laughs> I can see me returning from the dead and going to my wife and saying, Honey, did you happen to see what I did with my shoes? And I, I could see my husband doing the same thing. And I, would, <laughs> I would tell him what I always tell him. They're in the closet. <laughs> Some legends claim that Pitar also demanded food from his son, and when he refused, Blagojevic ripped into his throat with his bared teeth and drank of his blood. I mean, 
ungrateful kid. Give your dad something to eat. Come on. The villagers decided to disinter the body and examine it for signs of vampirism, such as growing hair, beard, and nails, and the absence of decomposition. So they dug up his corpse, and sure enough, the body was, to their eyes, undecomposed. The hair and beard had grown, and the old skin and fingernails had peeled away, and fresh ones were growing. And there was also blood in his mouth. Quick interesting factoid here. It was believed for a long time that hair and fingernails can keep growing after death. But this is wrong. What happens is the skin retracts because of dehydration, and it just gives the illusion of longer fingernails and hair. Basically, the hair and fingernails stay the same, but the rest of the body is shriveling up and shrinking. The report on this event was among the first documented testimonies about vampire beliefs in Eastern Europe and caused a cultural obsession. The word vampire itself only became part of the English lexicon in 1732, though its roots are much older, going back to the Czech and Russian term uper, based on the root p, which means to drink. By 1751, books on vampires were being put out by European scholars such as Antoine Calmet in his Treaty on the Vampires of Hungary, Carl Ferdinand in his Magic Posthuma, and Giuseppe de Zanti in his Dissertation sur Vampire. And by the 1800s, there was a full-on vampire mania taking place. In the traditions of the time, Vampires were revenants of evil beings, suicide victims, or witches. But they could also be created by a malevolent spirit possessing a corpse or being bitten by a vampire, which we see today. There are several elements common to these European legends. Vampires were usually reported as bloated in appearance and ruddy, purplish, or dark in color. These characteristics were often attributed to the recent drinking of blood which observers would see seeping from the mouth and nose when a vampire was spotted in its coffin. The vampire was typically clad in the linen shroud he or she had been buried in, and, as we've just talked about, its teeth, hair, and nails had very likely grown since mm -hmm. death. Though, surprisingly, fangs were never a feature of these early European vampires. Fangs wouldn't make their appearance until 1845, in the horror fiction book Varney the Vampire by James Malcolm Reimer and Thomas Peckett Prest. Vampires could be created by a variety of means. If an animal, such as a cat or dog, jumped over a corpse, the deceased was at risk of becoming one of the undead. A body with a wound that had not been treated with boiling water was also at risk. In Russian folklore, vampires were said to have once been witches or people who had rebelled against the Russian Orthodox Church while they were alive. In Balkan folklore, a dampier was the hybrid child of a vampire and a human, and Albania hosts a similar legend. The dampier is really interesting to me. It, it would make a great story. Um, you know anybody who's written about them? I don't think I have. It like looks very familiar. Like The word looks familiar to me, but I don't know if it's just because I've like researched vampires a bunch in my own writing. I've never written about them in particular, but yeah, it would be cool to find anybody out there, horror fiction writers that have featured the Dampier in their, in their work, reach out, let us know. 
It's interesting. Although not the undead themselves, they have supernatural abilities. They can see invisible undead, and they often apparently became vampire hunters themselves. Though in other traditions, I notice they're born without any bones at all and just quickly die. Ah, bummer. (laughs) Regardless of the methods through which one could become a vampire, cultures were never short on methods of prevention. Burying a corpse upside down was widespread, as was placing earthly objects such as scythes or sickles near the grave to satisfy any demons entering the body, or to appease the dead so that it would not wish to rise from its coffin. Similarly, there are many ways to identify the site of vampiric activity. One method for finding a vampire's grave is to lead a virgin boy through a graveyard or church uh, sorry, or church grounds, on a virgin stallion, and the horse would supposedly balk at the grave in question. Generally, a black horse was necessary for this, but in Albania, it was a white horse. And another legend suggested that holes appearing in the earth over a grave were to be taken as a sure sign of vampirism. I gotta say, as silly as some of this sounds, I, I love it. I just love this shit. Absolutely love it. Well, it is also just super interesting. Like it's it's a symptom of like humanity's folklore and, and beliefs at the time. So it's yeah, there's struggle I find to it. understand things. Yep. And it's a spooky and fun. Yes, <laughs> totally. Uh, and corpses thought to be vampires were generally described as having a healthier appearance than expected. We went into this a little bit already, but they were plump and showed no signs or little signs of decomposition. In some cases, when suspected graves were opened, villagers even described the corpse as having fresh blood from a victim smeared across its face. Evidence that a vampire was active in a given location included death of cattle, sheep, relatives, or neighbors. And folkloric vampires could also make their presence felt by engaging in minor poltergeist activity such as hurling stones onto roofs or moving household objects, pressing on people in their sleep. Interestingly, a common complaint from those suffering from tuberculosis was the feeling of constant weight upon the chest, as if someone was sitting on their sternum, which leads us to the idea of vampirism as the answer to the question of death and certain disease. Indeed, early folk belief in vampires has often been ascribed to people in pre-industrial societies trying to rationalize and explain the mysteries of death from unidentifiable or mysterious illnesses, usually within the same family or the same small community. As we've mentioned, people sometimes suspected vampirism when a cadaver did not look as they thought a normal corpse should when disinterred. Rates of decomposition vary depending on temperature, soil composition, and many of the natural signs of decay were little known at the time. This had everyone from self-proclaimed vampire hunters to small-town medical examiners mistakenly concluding that a dead body had not decomposed at all, or to interpret marks of decomposition as signs of continued life. This epidemic illusion is obvious in several famous cases, including that of Pitar Blagojevich and Yor Grando, but even more so in the cases of vampire beliefs in New England, where tuberculosis became associated with outbreaks of vampirism. As with the pneumonic form of bubonic plague, 
Tuberculosis was associated with breakdown of lung tissue, which could cause blood to appear at the lips, as well as a pale, gaunt complexion that many believed indicative of vampires. And as vampire mania spread across Europe, it also crossed the Atlantic Ocean and eventually arrived in New England, particularly in Rhode Island, where sources claim 90% of the New England vampire phenomenon occurred. Chapter 2. Vampires Arrive in New England Rhode Island was founded in 1636 by Roger Williams, who had been banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony for believing in the separation of church and state and religious freedom, essentially laying the groundwork for the First Amendment long before the Constitution, attracting not only Baptists but others seeking religious freedom, like Quakers who were often considered radical heretics and were persecuted in Massachusetts, and Jewish folks as well. It became a melting pot of 17th century religious radicals. And it also became a place of supernatural beliefs, including ghosts, like the Ramtail Factory in Foster, which was designated in the 1880 census of Rhode Island as being officially haunted. As Abigail Tucker writes in the Smithsonian Magazine, quote, in place of organized worship, superstitions reigned, magical springs with healing powers, dead bodies that bled in the presence of their murderers. People buried shoes by fireplaces to catch the devil if he tried to come down the chimney. They nailed horseshoes above doors to ward off evil and carved daisy wheels, a kind of colonial hex sign, into the door frames. End quote. Though it should really be pointed out that though superstition and belief in the paranormal flourished in spooky Rhode Island, they never executed any supposed witches, unlike those uptight Puritans in Massachusetts who had banished Roger Williams. It's believed the concept of vampires was brought to New England during the American Revolution by Hessian mercenaries from Germany. But the term vampire wasn't used. Instead, the ghoulish creatures spreading death were called the offending corpse. <laughs> which actually sounds more terrifying personally oh and, you for know, sure i was just is it true that hessian mercenaries would 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 carve their teeth into fangs like in uh like christopher walken in the legend of sleepy hollow you know i never thought to like look that up in like it's specifically in with relation to this this theory too that that yeah that's very interesting we'll have to look it up and maybe add it to a caption when we post this or the show notes or whatever. If anyone knows, send us an email. And yes, this vampire mythos of the offending corpse that came to the new world was part of both regional superstitions and folk medicine. And in New England, the two would come to intertwine with horrific tuberculosis outbreaks. Very little was understood about infectious disease at the time, and tuberculosis, or consumption as it was known, for the way the disease consumed victims from the inside out, was believed by many to be caused by nightly visitations on the part of a dead family member who had died of consumption themselves. In reality, tuberculosis is a contagious bacterial infection, mainly infecting the lungs, that spreads through the air when an infected person coughs or sneezes. 
Ironically, as vampire paranoia was spreading across New England, across the ocean in Germany, the source of much of the New England belief in vampires, a Dr. Robert Koch was successfully identifying mycobacterium as the causative agent of tuberculosis, coming to the belief that it was airborne and not an inherited disease, as scientists then believed. But this is not the only way that Koch juxtaposes this case, and we will return to him later. At the time, the disease was the most common cause of death in the United States, ravaging whole families, the members of which grew pale and wasted away. But what made the intersection of widespread tuberculosis and the whispered beliefs of vampires such a perfect storm for the eventual exhumations that would pepper the maps of Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. For that answer, we have to thank Rhode Island folklore scholar Michael Bell, whom state archaeologist Nick Bellantoni called after his discovery of J.B. in Griswold, Connecticut. Bell has been described as a, quote, touch vampiric himself, end quote, with his thin physique and shock of white hair. The 80-year-old Bell started investigating vampires in New England in 1981, when he led a grant to explore the folk life of southern Rhode Island. For his doctorate at Indiana University, he'd studied voodoo practices in the American South. But eventually, after learning of a case involving a 19-year-old consumption victim exhumed in 1892 under suspicion of draining the life from her brother, Bell dug further into the folk beliefs of the rural communities of southern Rhode Island, finding accounts and articles that sent him spiraling into what some might call an obsession. Soon he was unearthing tales of vampires all over New England, describing 20 of them in his 2001 book, Food for the Dead, On the Trail of New England's Vampires. In the two decades since that book's publication, he's found 87 cases in all, gathering them in a new book entitled Vampire's Grasp, slated to be published in 2024. Ooh, can't wait to read that. While accounts of vampirism span New England, with some even in New York and Pennsylvania, Bell considered the epicenter of activity to be southern Rhode Island, home to 17 cases. He says, quote, I think Rhode Island was more open to what we'd call a magical worldview. Bell, who lives part-time in Cranston and notes that the state was originally founded by heretics fleeing Puritan Massachusetts, adds, people were more unfettered in their beliefs. Bell's research helped chart a map of vampire incidents across New England, the most significant of which we'll cover here, starting with an incident dating from the time of the American Revolution. The following story appeared in Signe S. Ryder's The Belief in Vampires in Rhode Island. At the breaking out of the revolution, there dwelt in one of the remote Rhode Island towns a young man whom we will call Stuckley. He married an excellent woman and settled down in life as a farmer. Industrious, prudent, thrifty, he accumulated a handsome property for a man in his station in life and comparable to his surroundings. In his family, he likewise prospered, for Mrs. Stuckley, meantime, had not been idle, having presented her worthy spouse with 14 children. Numerous and happy were the Stuckley family, and proud was the sire as he rode about the town on his excellent horse 
and attired in his homespun jacket of butternut brown, a species of garment which he much affected, so much indeed that he affected that a sobriquet was given him by the townspeople. It grew out of the brown color of his coats. Snuffy Stook, they called him, and by that name he lived, and by it he died. For many years all things worked well with Snuffy Stook. His sons and daughters developed finally, until some of them had reached the age of man or womanhood. The eldest was a comely daughter, Sarah. One night, Snuffy Stook dreamed a dream, which, when he remembered in the morning, gave him no end of worriment. He dreamed that he possessed a fine orchard, as in truth he did, and that exactly half the trees in it died. The occult meaning hidden in this revelation was beyond the comprehension of Snuffy Stook, and that was what gave worry to him. Events, however, developed rapidly, and Snuffy Stook was not kept long in suspense as to the meaning of his singular dream. Sarah, the eldest child, sickened, and her malady, developing into a quick consumption, hurried her into the grave. Sarah was laid away in the family burying ground, and quiet came again to the Stuckley family. But quiet came not to Stuckley. His apprehensions were not buried in the grave of Sarah. His unquiet quiet was but of a short duration. For soon a second daughter was taken ill precisely as Sarah had been, and as quickly was hurried to the grave. But in the second case, there was one symptom or complaint of a startling character and which was not present in the first. This was the continual complaint that Sarah came every night and sat upon some portion of the body, causing great pain and misery. So it went on, one after another, sickened and died until six were dead, and the seventh, a son, was taken ill. The mother also now complained of these nightly visits to Sarah, these same characteristics were present in every case after the first one. Consternation confronted the stricken household. Evidently, something must be done. And that, too, right quickly, to save the remnant of this family. Consultation was called with the most learned people, and it was resolved to exhume the bodies of the six dead children. Their hearts were then to be cut from their bodies and burned upon a rock in front of the house. The neighbors were called in to assist the laborious enterprise. With pick and spade, the graves were soon open, and the six bodies were found to be far advanced in the stage of decomposition. These were the last of the children who had died, but the first, the body of Sarah, was found to be in a very remarkable condition. The eyes were opened and fixed. The hair and nails had grown and the heart and arteries were filled with fresh red blood. It was clear at once to these astonished people that the cause of their trouble lay there before them. All the conditions of the vampire were present in the corpse of Sarah, the first that had died, and against whom all the others had so bitterly complained. So her heart was removed and carried to the designated rock, and there solemnly burned. This being done, the mutilated bodies were returned to their respective graves and covered. 
peace then came to this afflicted family, but not, however, until a seventh victim had been demanded. Thus was the dream of Stuckley fulfilled. No longer did the nightly visits Sarah afflict his wife, who soon regained her health. The seventh victim, a son, a promising young farmer, who had married and lived upon a farm adjoining. He was far too gone when the burning of Sarah's heart took place to recover. So it seems half of Snuffy's orchard died after all. Yet if one believed in the undead returning from their graves to infect the living with disease, burning the heart does seem kind of a somewhat logical conclusion. But things were snowballing and just getting weirder. As we see 30 years later, when another Rhode Island family would find themselves mired in similar tragedy, when Nancy Young contracted what was first thought to be a severe cold. The case was covered in the Pawtuxet Valley Gleaner on April 27, 1892, by a Casey Tyler, and reads as follows. Sixty years ago or more, Captain Levi Young of Sterling, Connecticut, who married Annie Perkins, bought the extreme southern portion of the original Dorrance Purchase and directed a house thereon and commenced life as a farmer. His oldest daughter, Nancy, a very bright and intelligent girl, at an early age became feeble in health and died of consumption on April 6, 1827, aged 19 years. Previous to the death of Nancy, the second daughter, Almira, a very sprightly girl, commenced a rapid decline in health with sure indications that she must soon follow her sister. The best skill of the most eminent physicians seemed to be all in vain. There was a large family of children, and several of them were declining in the same manner. Mr. Young was a very worthy and pious man and wished to do everything possible to benefit his family, and he had the sympathy of all his friends and neighbors. A short time after the decease of Nancy and the summer of 1827, the neighbors and friends at Mr. Young's request came together and exhumed the remains of Nancy and had her body burned while all the members of the family gathered around and inhaled the smoke from the burning remains, feeling confident, no doubt, that it would restore them to health and prevent any more of them from falling prey to that dread disease, consumption. But it would seem that it was no benefit to them, as Almira died August 19, 1828, aged 17 years. Only a son died December 12, 1831, aged 29 years. Holda died August 1836, aged 23 years. Caleb died May 8, 1843, aged 26 years. Hiram died February 17, 1854, aged 35 years. Wow, that's a lot of people. That's really tragic. You could almost see how people would think something supernatural is afoot. All this I know. There is a curse upon your family. But it's crazy because now they seem to think that inhaling the smoke from a burning corpse of a vampire would cure one. And I don't How did that conclusion come about? I don't get it. If anything, wouldn't smoking the corpse of a vampire like make you a vampire if anything? Maybe you have like dominion over it if you brought it into your own body like willingly. I I don't I agree. I doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You've been inoculated, maybe. Yeah. It, 
It's crazy. The Missing Magnolias podcast tells the stories of the missing and murdered. Ultimately, these kids went into state custody and they never came out. Together with missing persons expert, Dr. Michelle Shanice, we uncover the real true crime experience. Every time we do another interview, I'm like, how do we find so many badass women? We hear from victims who turn their pain into something positive. We didn't find out till we were 11 or 12 years old that our mom was murdered. In Times Square, it said Mickey Shunick fought for her life and experts who think outside the box to solve cases. I scour missing persons databases like NamUs to see if they're uploaded to that database. Subscribe to Missing Magnolias on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Following the Nancy Young case, there would be William Rose. William Rose was a widower and civic leader in Exeter, Rhode Island. In 1874, his 15-year-old daughter, Ruth Ellen Rose would die of consumption. Shortly thereafter, his seven-year-old daughter, Rosalind, would also come down with the dread disease, causing William to believe an evil presence was preying on his children. William decided the whispered rumors of vampires were true. How else to explain so much loss in one family? And the only logical conclusion was, the vampire must be his dead daughter, Ruth Ellen. At first, he sought help from the minister of the local chapel. The Reverend Amos Cabot was unnerved by William's accusations. From a dramatic retelling of the Rose case in Christopher Rondina's book, Vampire Legends of Rhode Island, we have the following exchange occur between the two men, the Reverend responding to William's talk of vampires. William, the loss of your daughter was a tremendous blow, and I understand that. But vampires? Maybe this madness is taking hold in other towns, but I cannot sanction such heretical notions here. My little Rosalind is dying, Amos. Perhaps it's madness and perhaps it isn't, but I cannot take that chance. Do you have any idea what this could do to our community? We can't lead people to believe that some ungodly creature is killing our people. People die, William. It happens. What would you have me do? Pray. I'll be damned if I'm going to sit about grumbling at the heavens while some abomination is killing my family. Good day, Reverend Cabot. William. Good day! William then had a harrowing dream where he was wandering alone through the graveyard. As he shambled past the graves, a pale figure emerged from the shadows, calling out to him, Father, I was so cold. Hold me, Father. I can't seem to get warm. As the ghastly specter reached for him, William awakened, shaken to his core. That very day, he made up his mind on what must be done and went to the family plot where Ruth Ellen was buried and began to dig up the grave, eventually uncovering her coffin. Using his shovel, he cracked open the casket, and there in the coffin lay his daughter in her white funeral shroud, which was stained with blood. Recoiling at the sight of blood on her, he resolved himself to the horrible task. He raised a knife to his daughter's chest and sunk it into her ribs. 
As he hacked her chest open, she let out a harrowing gasp. Then, as he ripped her heart free, she fell silent. And guess what? It worked. Rosalind recovered. Hacking the heart from his daughter's corpse had cured the family of the evil curse, offering proof to some of vampires. Ruth Ellen Rose is buried in an unknown, unmarked grave at Rhode Island Historical Cemetery, Exeter number 50, the Rose Lot. Though Ellen's grave is unmarked, William's grave can be found. He did not want to be buried below ground, so his grave was built on a large 30 by 20 foot elevated platform. His grave is enclosed by a stone wall three to four feet high. The walled area was filled with sand, giving him a resting place at or above ground level. Chapter 3. Testing a Horrible Superstition But the most famous of all the New England vampires is that of Mercy Brown, believed then by some, and by some even today, to have been a malignant reanimated corpse who rose from the grave to suck the life force from her family. The legend of the vampire Mercy Brown has become so pervasive that on Halloween, Rhode Island police must guard her grave from vandals over the fear that her headstone will be stolen. Again, because it was stolen once and was oh, recovered. Was it? it was recovered. And um, so actually, and I think I added this information. We can uh, we can blame this on me. Her police are dispatched to the cemetery often and especially on Halloween, but it's not necessarily to guard her gravestone now because her gravestone has been bolted to the earth. There's like a special extra piece of cement behind it and it's bolted to that so that it can't be removed. They mainly go now just to make sure whatever shenanigans and seances are taking place at her gravesite are uh, done so without destruction of property or, you know burning candles in in a dry you know the fall foliage on the ground if you're gonna hold a seance be respectful do it nicely don't don't vandalize precisely um and much like bathsheba sherman another rhode island legend of superstition whom we covered in episode 35 and whose grave has also been flocked to and defaced not much is known about the actual mercy brown The story of the Mercy Brown vampire incident of 1892, as best we can piece it together by newspaper clippings, historical records, and Brown descendants, is as follows. In the late 19th century, the southern part of Rhode Island was sparsely populated. The Civil War had ravaged the area, and most of the survivors had left to seek out better opportunities. The town of Exeter became known as Deserted Exeter. By 1893, there were just 17 people per square mile in the town. A fifth of the farms were fully abandoned, the fields turning slowly back into forest. Those who stayed were subsistence farming families who eked out a living working the rocky, barely fertile soil. One of these Yankee farmer families was the Browns. Family patriarch was one George T. Brown. He and his wife, Mary Eliza, had three children, Mary Olive, Edwin, and Mercy Lena. 
at least three that are talked about in the records of the times. But we'll get more into that later. The Browns worked their modest farm, where the rhythm of life was dictated by the seasons, the demands of agriculture, and the close-knit nature of their community. The family's connection to the land shaping their lives, with planting and harvesting seasons dictating their daily routines. But in December of 1882, tragedy struck when Mary Eliza contracted tuberculosis and soon fell victim to the wasting disease. As the bacteria infected the lungs, she would have begun to have a bad cough. Soon she'd be hacking up blood-spattered mucus. Then she'd begin to lose weight, gasp for breath, wasting away as the disease consumed her. Mary Eliza soon died. Losing the matriarch must have been a huge burden on the little farming family. But tragedy would strike again, for shortly afterwards, daughter Mary Olive also contracted the disease. Olive was only 20 years old, but consumption proved too much for her, and on June 6, 1884, she too died. Eight years then passed, the family working their farm, when suddenly son Edwin came down with the disease, coughing up blood, struggling to breathe, and slowly wasting away as the bacteria took a hold of his lungs. He had sought a cure in the rarefied air and mineral waters of Colorado Springs, Colorado, but after 18 months, returned to the family farm in Rhode Island. Mercy, too, came down with the disease. A very bad case. What was known as the galloping form of the affliction. She was quickly consumed and died on January 17, 1892, at just 19 years old. As it was January, and the ground frozen solid, her body was interred in an above-ground crypt. With Edwin slowly wasting away, and nearly all the family now dead, rumors of the supernatural began to be whispered about the tight-knit farming community. It came to be believed that one of the dead family members was an offending corpse or vampire, caught between heaven and hell, and returning from the grave at night to suck the life force from poor Edwin. George was not a superstitious man and was skeptical of the rumors. But when his friends and neighbors urged him to try the, quote, old-time remedy, he finally reluctantly agreed and gave permission for the bodies to be exhumed. The medical examiner, villagers, and a newspaper reporter solemnly headed to the Brown family plot in the town's Chestnut Hill Cemetery on March 17, 1892, with shovels in hand. In the small graveyard behind the town's Baptist church, they exhumed the bodies of Mary Eliza and Mary Olive. Mary Eliza and Mary Olive, who had been dead for years by this point, all that was left of their bodies were skeletons, the little bit of hair on the skulls. But Mercy Lena, who had only died a couple of months earlier in January and hadn't even been buried in the ground, proved different. When the lid was lifted off of Mercy's coffin, her body was found on her side. Her face appeared flush, and there was blood in her heart and in her veins, leading the villagers to believe that death was, quote, not complete. 
Mercy Lena Brown was clearly a vampire, an undead being subsisting on the living tissue and blood of poor Edwin Brown. The medical examiner, one Dr. Harold Metcalf, who'd raised his objection to the entire affair, assured everyone that the lack of decomposition of Mercy's body was perfectly consistent with the fact that she'd been dead for less than two months and stored above ground in basically a refrigerated vault. But since medicine had done nothing to save the Browns, the people of Exeter ignored the doctor's proclamations and took the presence of fresh blood in Mercy's heart as a sign that she was undead. Mercy Brown was a vampire, and the villagers were sure of it. They gathered firewood and kindled a bonfire on a pile of nearby rocks. Then they cut out Mercy's heart and liver and cremated them on the pyre. They returned to Edwin Brown's house with the ashes of his dead sister's heart and liver and mixed them with the water. Edwin consumed the concoction, which was seen as a cure, but the tuberculosis continued to consume him. He died two months later on May 2nd, 1892. Yes, they've gone from just burning the bodies or hearts to inhaling the smoke to now actually drinking the ashes in some kind of potion. It's craziness to me, pure craziness. And You can't make this stuff up. It's as real as can be historical fact. And the event was actually published in an article in the Providence Journal that reads, Testing a horrible superstition in the town of Exeter. Bodies of dead relatives taken from their graves. They had all died of consumption, and the belief was that live flesh and blood would be found that fed upon the bodies of the living. Within a few years, George T. Brown of Exeter had been bereft of a wife and two daughters by that dreaded disease consumption. During the few weeks past, Mr. Brown had been besieged on all sides by a number of people who expressed implicit faith in an old theory that by some unexplained and unreasonable way, in some part of the deceased relative's body, live flesh and blood might be found, which is supposed to feed upon the living who are in feeble health. Mr. Brown, having no confidence in the old-time theory, and also getting no encouragement from the medical fraternity, did not yield to their importunities until Thursday afternoon, when an investigation was held under the direction of Harold Metcalf, M.D. The bodies of the wife and two daughters who were buried in the Exeter Cemetery were exhumed and an examination made, finding nothing but skeletons of the bodies of the wife and eldest daughter. After examination of the body of M. Lena, who was buried nine weeks ago, Dr. Metcalf reports the body in a state of natural decomposition, with nothing exceptional existing. When the doctor removed the heart and liver from the body, a quantity of blood dripped therefrom. But this, he said, was just what might be expected from a similar examination of almost any person after the same length of time from decease. The heart and liver were cremated by the attendants. Mr. Brown has the sympathy of the community. Two days after that, another article ran in the Providence Journal, which was much more clear in the ghoulish events that transpired. The article was entitled, The Vampire Theory, The Search for the Spectral Ghoul in the Exeter Graves. 
What a headline. I love it. And the article states, quote, not a Rhode Island tradition, but settled here. It originated in Europe, cremation of the heart of the sister for the consumptive brother to eat the ashes, unquote. And goes on to tell how the doctor didn't believe any of the supernatural theories and only attended because he was paid to do so. It then goes on to say, quote, the vampire is described in the Century Dictionary as follows. A kind of spectral being or ghost still possessing a human body, which, according to a superstition existing among the Slavic and other races of the lower Danube, leaves the grave during the night and maintains a semblance of life by sucking the warm blood of men and women while they are asleep. Dead wizards, werewolves, heretics, and other outcasts become vampires, and anyone killed by a vampire. On the discovery of a vampire's grave, the body, which is supposed will be found fresh and ruddy, must be disinterred, thrust through with a white thorn stake, and burned in order to render it harmless. End quote. The article then states, quote, In all forms of the tradition, the vampire left its abode and wrought its object at night. When the full moon shone and the sky was cloudless, its opportunity was supposed to be most favorable, appearing as a frog, toad, spider, bat, or venomous fly from that moment, until it returned to its corpse home, end quote. Wow, just so much in there. Dead wizards and werewolves can become vampires. And then frogs, toads, and spiders. I've, I've never heard that one. That's really cool. Um, I do wonder, how could a frog bite you and, and draw blood out of you? It's, it's yeah. It, they don't even have little, teeth, do they? It's, it's, a bit, uh, it's a bit colorful, the article's <laughs> descriptions. The article also states that some believe the body took the shape of a sprig of straw or fluff of down and wafted to the victim on the night breezes which does kind of go with like they didn't actually believe the corpse rose and walked about so this is like another twist on like the offending corpse it was like the aura of the corpse in in, an, in other um explanations or descriptions um so this is interesting sprig of straw could come into your bedroom and suck your blood like weird a fluff of down blowing in the night wind yeah. that's like a good description of how tuberculosis is actually spread. Yeah, that's very true. The article continues by saying that how the myth of the vampire got to Rhode Island is unknown, but it has existed in Connecticut and Maine for a hundred years. It also states Rhode Island appears to be where the idea of eating the ashes of the vampire's heart will cure one of the affliction, one of the afflicted originated. Uh, you Rhode Islanders, uh, that's what you get by being founded by someone who believed in religious freedom. <laughs> and today it's said that mercy haunts a certain bridge and manifests herself with the smell of roses. Have you ever been to that bridge? Do you know what they're, they're talking about? I've heard this. No. And when I did like tons of research into this case, the bridge thing seems to me to be the concoction of some like legend tripper that like went to the grave and then like put something on youtube like i can't find right. <laughs> anything that's actually based in fact like that her um you know that her farm was near a bridge or that she you know like they walked over that bridge to bring her ashes back to edwin like there's nothing that 
substantial uh, concrete to to really sell me on that bridge the haunted bridge theory um i have heard the smell of roses one a ton too but i think that's the same thing i usually tend to hear that in like there's also supposedly some ghost recording equipment that has recorded her her voice saying something but not only of course of course that's everywhere Right. But not only like clearly do I not believe that, but I can't even find the supposed recording of it anywhere. So that one, I'm just like, oh, if you want to hear some hilarious stuff. Remember, we did Lizzie Borden last week. Yeah. Watch that. Watch the the curse of Lizzie Borden documentary. And they got they're recording her voice all the time. It's just she's going, I was a good daughter. And it's creepy. It's fun. It's cool. But it's like, yeah, it's you can hear whatever you want to hear. And, you know. Yeah, those recordings always kill me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but something about the facts of Mercy Brown's case that always stood out to me was that Mary Olive and Mary Eliza, her older sister and her mother, died in 1883 and 1884, respectively. And eight years later, Mercy gets sick and dies. So eight years that she had to live with the loss of her mother and her older sister Wondering, I'm sure, if the disease would come for her next and when. I also always wondered what her life was like. I mean, she grew up 22 miles from where I grew up and where I now live again today, albeit in a very different time. But she was thrust into the role of matriarch of her nuclear family under tragic circumstances. And I've always looked for details as to what happened during those eight years. And I've always found absolutely nothing. Nothing about Mercy Brown's life, not directly related to the vampire incident and to her role as unwitting scapegoat for Exeter's sake. Um, I guess I will say, like, I did find that she she was a, an avid quilter and uh, one mm-hmm. of her descendants does have a quilt that she quilted. And it's um very interesting because the pattern of the quilt is the wandering foot pattern. And you can find like a, a there's there's two different explanations for like what the wandering foot pattern means and what it's symbolic of and one of them is like very benign and like not very fun but one of them is that whoever sleeps under the the wandering foot pattern is destined to wander forever which kind of goes along with her little legend of like never being at rest um yes but aside from like the the concrete object of the quilt lending itself to like you know the I don't, I, I, that, it's not just a theory. Like she was known to have been a, an avid quilter, and her sister was a quilter. The quilt's still around, right? You can see it. Well, it's still around. And a few years back, my understanding was that it was in possession of an ancestor of Mercy's that was a little more con- contactable, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. Like she was a little more. Um, I, I I was able to call a woman who is a supposed descendant of Mercy Brown. And I spoke with her on the phone, but of course it was right when COVID started and she was an older woman. And I think when the lockdown happened, like, you know, it was just, that was the last, the last contact I was able to find with anybody, a direct descendant of hers. And I haven't been able to really trace the new location of the quilt. Um, I do think somebody, if I remember correctly, somebody from the historical society I think just confirmed to me that it's in, you know, it's in the possession of a relative. It's not unfortunately like in a museum or anything. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's just the whole thing just 
has always been so interesting because we know beyond a doubt today that Mercy was not a vampire. We also know how tuberculosis is transmitted from one person to the next and that drinking the ashes of a deceased loved one's internal organs are not going to cure you of this disease. But this legend has persisted nonetheless. Right. Ten years before Mercy's death on the other side of the Atlantic, as we mentioned, uh, German scientist Robert Koch discovered the specific causative agent of tuberculosis. And interestingly, about a year before Mercy's exhumation, he developed what he said was a miracle cure. He called mm -hmm. it tuberculin. The substance was derived from tubercil bacilli, which Koch believed capable of arresting bacterial development in vitro and in animals, and which he subsequently touted as this huge cure. But this supposed cure was no more effective than digging up a loved one's corpse and ingesting the ashes of their cremated hearts. It was a completely bogus cure. Yeah, and um, it's it's tough because he absolutely made a, a tremendous discovery with the causative agent, and it did help lead eventually to the cure. And time has bestowed this man with the honor of being a hero for his work on infectious diseases. And yet, if you read a lot about him, he was he was a man entirely driven by ego to the point where he made his claims of a cure without having conducted the proper tests to verify his hypothesis. He was really driven by a rival with another scientist. And his remedy was proven ineffective, like we said, but not before innumerable people had taken false hope from the announcement. He also cheated on his wife with a teenaged mistress whom he then used as a human subject in TB antibody tests that he conducted too early in his research to be considered safe. Um, he was impulsive and vain, and he, it's just, I mean, if you, there's a book entitled Robert Koch, it's called The Remedy by Thomas Goetz. Robert Koch, Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle, and the Quest to Cure Tuberculosis. And it's a super interesting book about his life and all of the ups and downs that led to, um, sort of, the, maybe not led to, but that just chronicle the history of um, both infectious disease work in general and the germ theory of disease and the history of tuberculosis. Um, but it's just crazy how motivated he was by trying to be in this race against another German scientist. And it just seems when you read it that he really wasn't driven by any intense desire to help patients suffering from what was at the time the world's deadliest disease. And so, of course, there's plenty of men who are extolled for their contributions to society while their less than moral characteristics go unacknowledged and undiscussed. And in Berlin, the Robert Koch Institute is a federal government research agency that includes a museum to preserve both the work and the man behind it. And it kind of just kills me a little that, like, conversely, Mercy Brown, a young girl whose life was plagued by hardship and tragedy, is remembered today as a vampire. So I just, I've thought so much about this. I've written an entire novel about Mercy Brown in this subject, and it's just... My belief is that history turns so many undeserving men into heroes and then many more undeserving women into monsters. And I've also I've never been able to quite put my finger on what part of Mercy's story constitutes an incident. It's just funny to me that it's always Mercy Brown vampire incident of 1892. 
And it's, what is the incident? Is it when Mercy's heart was found to have blood in it, despite being interred above ground for over two months between her death in January and her exhumation in March? Is it Edwin's alleged ingestion of the ashes, regardless of the fact that the superstition proved unfounded and he still died two months later? It's also just like the facts of her story are not always included or gotten right. She was one of six children, not three. And there were three girls younger than her, Hattie, Myra, and Jenny. My best guess as to why they're never mentioned is because, like the events of the eight years between her sister's death and Mercy's, the the younger girl's existence, it doesn't do anything to advance the plot of the vampire legend. And that's really all anybody cares about. Um, so... Mercy Brown was was no reanimated corpse, intent on draining the life force of neighbors and family members. She was just a, a 19-year-old girl trying to survive for eight years after the deaths of her mother and older sister from tuberculosis in a place known for inspiring isolation and hopelessness. Wow. Well said. And it also, it really reminds me of the Bathsheba Sherman stuff, too. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, on a lighter note, we do have the tale of Mercy Brown to thank for some great horror stories. So an 1896 New York World newspaper clipping of the incident was found in Bram Stoker's papers. His theater company was actually touring the United States that year. And just the next year, the classic vampire novel Dracula was published. So but some scholars say that there wasn't enough time for the newspaper accounts to have influenced the manuscript. But other historians really see... Mercy Lena in the character of Lucy. Because for one, her very name appears to be an amalgam of Lena and Mercy, Lucy. And, you know, she's a pale teenage girl turned into a vampire. And her body is exhumed in this, like, utterly iconic part of the book. And in the book, a medical doctor presides over Lucy's disinterment, just as one oversaw Lena's. And the Mercy Brown story is also referred to in H.P. Lovecraft's The Shunned House and was the inspiration for the young adult novel Mercy, The Last New England Vampire by Sarah L. Thompson. And most recently, uh, the story of Mercy Brown is also prominently featured in Paul Tremblay's novel The Pallbearers Club. And if you listeners out there love gothic creepy horror and want to read something spooky set in Rhode Island, definitely check out Krista's amazing book, the Daughters of Block Island. And Krista, I hear you have another novel available for pre-order already. I do. The, the rumors are true. This one, is, I mean, you can categorize it the same way, too. It's spooky, set in Rhode Island, set on Benefit Street in Providence, the home of the once home of Sarah Helen Whitman, who was the once fiancé of Edgar Allan Poe. And it's sort of a, a residual haunting of, of their relationship and in modern day Providence. We should do a show uh, when that gets close to getting coming out on Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, like, Poe in Providence and his in his death and his death. It's particular. Yeah. And also Sarah Helen Whitman was like a very cool historical figure to she was really into um seances and spiritualism and the afterlife but from like a a very intellectual standpoint like she didn't necessarily it was like she wanted to believe but she wasn't like these crazy ghost hunters we see today she was trying to come at things from like a 
intelligent and educational and science, almost like the scientific method she wanted. She sources are a bit conflicting as to I believe she attended the first recorded seance and then also held the first recorded seance in Providence in her home. Um, so she was all about like collecting data and um, just was very into the spiritualism and the transcendentalism that was like running rampant in Providence and the greater New England area. And then, yeah, talking about Poe and all of uh, his connections to Rhode Island and then his mysterious or not so mysterious, whoever, depending on who you're talking to, his death. That could definitely be a cool show. I heard he was bit by a, uh, a rat with rabies. You ever hear that one? See, there we go. The, the, the <laughs> theories abound. <laughs> he ended up in a gutter in Baltimore. And I, uh, I've been in a few gutters in Baltimore, but luckily in your I own came clothes? out of it. <laughs> in your own clothes or in I, someone else's clothes? Because he was not in his it. own clothes. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Um, we will catch you next week with more fun stuff. And... Uh, you know we want to hear from you, so give us a little ring anytime at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you had some fun, and we will see you soon. <laughs>